Podcasting straight from North Carolina is Dr. Jennifer Eichner-Lowry sharing her author journey with you. Jen Lowry writes is a place where amazing things happen for authors and readers together. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate podcast host. Jen is just the bird singing the song. She is a published author, educator, homeschool mama, life coach, and dreamer. Join her on the daily journey of discovering what this writing life is all about. Let's see what she will be led by the Holy Spirit to talk about today. Here's Jen. Thanks for supporting my Jen Lowry Writes podcast. My purpose is to inspire and encourage others to chase after their writing goals with faith and courage. By hitting the support this podcast button and with your monthly contribution of 99 cents, $4.99 or $9.99, you are helping me chase after mine. Hey everybody, welcome to Jen Lowry Writes. All right, guys, just get ready because we've got Gina Wilkinson on the show. And look, look at this when the apricots bloom. Y'all, this is an amazing five-star love that you need to grab today. (laughs) So let me tell you more about Gina. During two decades living and working in hot spots around the globe, Wilkinson spent more than a year in Baghdad under Saddam Hussein. In this moving, suspenseful debut, she draws on her own experiences to take readers inside a haunting story of Iraq at the turn of the millennium and the impossible choices faced by families under a deadly regime. When the Apricots Bloom is a story about the complexities of trust, friendship, motherhood, and betrayal. When the Apricots Bloom is a BuzzFeed most anticipated historical fiction release, a publisher's marketplace buzz book selection, and a Target book club pick, and it was a number one new release last week when I was checking it out. Gina, thank you so much for being here on the show. Oh, thank you, Jim. Thank you for inviting me. So this loveliness that I'm holding in my hand that I've now told all of you guys to go and get a copy of this book. Just, just wow. When I finished and I placed it down, I was feeling so many emotions, like just a rush. And I got to like page 288 and I just screamed out loud. Like I just screamed because, and my husband is sitting there and he's watching his old sci-fi on TV and I'm reading and I'm like, oh, oh, and I just can't stop. It's like a whirlwind of disaster and dread and love and, and heart all wrapped up in this beautiful book. It's, I mean, Gina, I know you've got to be like, wow, yourself proud of this thing right here. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that after all those years of um, thinking about it and then all the years that it took to write it, that it's actually made it out into the world and into other people's hands because, uh, you know, when you're an author, there are many times, uh, including for me, where I wondered if anyone was going to read it except my own husband. <laughs> so, you know, so to see it out there um, finally making its way out into the real world is just so um, fantastic. 
and getting great feedback from that like yours is just amazing. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. So when you say years in the making, like from the beginning of chapter one till the end of chapter 31, how long did that process take you? Right. Well, um, you know, I guess there was there were many years of thinking about the real life behind the story that led up to it. Uh, so I was living in Baghdad in uh, I, I arrived in 2002. My husband was working for UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund. So we moved to Baghdad. Uh, this was about a year or so before the start of um, the war, the Iraq war. So Saddam Hussein was still in power. And actually when we went there, it was meant to be a very quiet posting. You know, he was a very oppressive dictator. So nothing much happened there without his say so. Uh, so it was, it was very quiet. Um, the country had been cut off by international sanctions for almost a decade. So you couldn't fly in or out. There were very, very few um, foreigners there. Um, you know, there was no um, outside TV, no outside newspapers, no internet that you could access, that sort of thing. It was meant to be very quiet. But just before we arrived, um, President George Bush gave his very well-known axis of evil speech. So it soon became apparent that it wasn't going to be a very quiet posting, um, that it was going to be actually quite volatile. But very soon after I arrived in Baghdad, I was befriended by a local woman and I later discovered that she was an informant for the secret police and that she was reporting back on where I went and who I met and what I did. And, you know, I want to say straight up that I, I don't blame her for that. Uh, you know, in uh, Iraq at that time, if the secret police wanted you to do something, it was very difficult for an ordinary person to say no, and she had a family to protect. So I definitely don't um, blame her. But, you know, over the years, I've always wondered, you know, was it just a job for her? Was it like an unpleasant duty that she had to perform? Or were we also friends in a way? And so I'd been thinking about that question you know, for many years before I started writing this book. And so I started with the scene, um, trying to imagine what someone like her, similar to her, would have felt. So I created this character of a secretary at a foreign embassy. And I start the book with the moment that the secret police come to her door, knocking on her door and demanding that she spy on her boss's wife or else they're going to conscript her son into, into a militia that's run by Uday Hussain. So um, that was when I started writing with that scene. And then I think it would have taken me, gosh, almost three years to write it, I think. Um, I moved countries at that time. I was living in um, Thailand when I started writing the book. And so we moved to um, just out on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. in Maryland, a place called Tacoma Park, Um just after I started writing. So that sort of interrupted the process. Then I had to get my two boys settled um, and uh, embarked on a, renovating a house and, uh, you know, all those sort of things that take you away from your writing. Uh, and so I would say in all, it probably took about three years to write it from, you know, the very first time I started writing it to you know, saying, okay, it's, it's done. Um, but yeah, many, many years of thinking and about it, you know, all the situation that inspired it leading up to it. 
And then even with all of the transition and change that you had to face with the moves and the renovations and the settling in with your family, the story would not let you go. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, you know, that was a very, uh, that whole period in Iraq was really quite um, life changing um, for me. You know, I feel when I left, um, I was very definitely a different person. Um, so, you know, also when you, you know, I was there for the last year of Saddam Hussein and then I worked as a journalist um, for the first year of the Iraq war. And it was a very violent um, and dangerous time. And I had several close friends who were killed and my former workplace was destroyed in a suicide bombing and things like that. So it was a really um, uh, hard time. And, you know, when the... When in the lead up to the war, I'm not like a pro-war person at all, but uh, the country was so oppressed and life was so difficult that I thought, well, you know, in this case, maybe, maybe it will end up being for the better. Um, but, you know, it didn't really, you know, not that Saddam Hussein is, um, you know, was good in any way at all, but afterwards it was just so violent and even more dangerous. So it was hard to you know, be there and like my Iraqi friends sort of hoping that the situation would improve, but it didn't really uh, improve afterwards. In fact, I would say it became more dangerous afterwards um, after Saddam was ousted. So it was a really hard time. And I think I went in, you know, I was uh, just 30 years old when I went into Baghdad. So I was quite young. And even though my work as a journalist had shown me that you know, bad things can happen to good people, um, that good people can make bad mistakes. Uh, I guess, you know, when you're young, you can see these things and understand these things intellectually, but in your heart, you think it's not going to happen to you, that that you, you're covered in Teflon in some way, that you are, you're going to be okay and you're not going to be impacted by these things. And I guess in, in Baghdad, I, I learned that that's not always true. Um, but, you know, I'm still very grateful for the time that I had there because the friends that I made in Iraq, I still have today, 20 years later, even though for a long time, you know, we couldn't even communi communicate by email or phone, but we are still um, close friends. Um, three of my Iraqi friends in particular read my entire manuscript, you know, checking everything for me. And another one of my good friends, um, uh She's an artist and there's a lot in the story about the artistic community, which I'm sure we'll get to. You know, she is always um, supporting me and she's on Instagram now. So, you know, she's always messaging me and stuff like that and um, also providing inspiration through her own work. But, uh, you know, my Iraqi friends were very inspiring and um, I feel lucky to have them in my life because they're such resilient people and they helped me get through the tough times uh, you know, they had been through such tough times, but they never got bitter. They didn't get cynical. They always kept going. They are real survivors. And when I was really down, you know, they would lift me up. Um, so for that, you know, that's also part of the inspiration of my book. I wanted to show um, the strength, particularly of the Iraqi women that I knew there and just their ability to um, keep going no matter what, um, and to rise above it, really. And so your three characters that we focus on, 
in the story. I, okay, if I had to pick one, it would be so hard for me. One, you have, you know, Allie, she's in there. She's all about just naive, not actually understanding the current that is pulling her. She has no clue about the riptide around her. So she has this just mission to do. She wants to find answers. And I love how you brought all of that with that picture, with the clues, with the mystery. And it's just on her heart for her to find out more information about her mother. And now that she's walking in her mother's footsteps, looking at the paradise of the sky, just the description that you give throughout the book made me feel as if I was also walking beside Allie. Like I was seeing it for the first time. I was walking into that bookstore so excited that I was there, not realizing that the lady that I was talking to was having to sell all of the, her books. It, that kind of duality that was going on throughout that just brought such a, a heart-wrenching yet profound balance to the story because maybe that's what it would be like for an outsider going in. Yeah, I, you know, the character of Allie, she is the diplomat's wife who is being spied upon. And um, a lot of people often ask me if, if I am Allie. Um, so we, we, we have some similarities. I created the character of Allie. I made her into a journalist because I was a journalist. So write what you know. Um, yes. Also, journalists weren't allowed to live in Baghdad. So I put my career on hold. Um, actually, my husband had followed me around the world. So when he got this opportunity with UNICEF, I was like, okay, well, you know, we'll, let's follow your career for a little while. But it meant I had to give up my job for a while. Uh, so I went in under the, the, this terrible visa category called the dependent spouse. So I went in, I was the only dependent spouse <laughs> in all of Baghdad. And Ali, the character of Ali is in the same situation. She uses that. So she goes from being a, you know, having her own independent life to being, um, you know, sort of stuck at home. But, um, and when I got there, you know, I did feel quite a lot of the isolation uh, that she felt, but unlike her, I, I went out and got a part-time job working with the UN. Um, and I, the big difference is I definitely did not go around poking into sensitive matters. You know, like I knew that I was being watched. I didn't know that it was by one of my friends, but I knew it I was well aware of it before I went into Baghdad. Um, I was given a security briefing by the UN and they said, um, the office will be bugged. Uh, your house is probably bugged. Your phone is probably bugged. So if you and your husband want to have any private conversations, if you want to say anything you don't want the authorities to hear, please um, go for a walk outside, you know, or go into your garden somewhere where there can't be a hidden microphone. Um, so I knew from the very beginning that I had to be careful about what I said. And, um, you know, I guess uh, I sh she also feels a lot of that paranoia, but I definitely didn't go poking around because, you know, even though I had some sort of protections, you know, to an extent, because I was connected to um, UNICEF, um, you know, anybody, any local who was around me, if I had done something wrong, obviously would have had to pay, you know, a much bigger price. So, um, you know, that was two, um, you know, major differences uh, between us. Um, but, yeah, she's sort of the, 
catalyst that brings um, the, the character of Huda and her friend Rania back together again. And so I spent a lot of time in the gardens while we were reading. Um, and so with Allie's character, she doesn't quite recognize the danger that she's in until this Oldsmobile comes riding along, which as we know in the book, you know, it's all planned events. It's all pushing towards the, the ultimate goal of that informant of, you know, trying to work that system there. Um, but when I loved Huda, but I will say, I think that, Rania was my favorite. Yeah, Rania is a lovely character. I, you know, I really wanted also to show like the dark and the light of Baghdad. And, you know, when I got to Baghdad, I was so excited to find out that um, it had more than two dozen independent art galleries operating an amazing art scene uh, in Iraq, like historically, if we're going back thousands of years and in present days. Uh, artists have really been honoured and respected in Iraqi society. And, you know, back um, thousands of years ago, uh, Iraq was at the, like the forefront of art and, you know, many other inventions, inventing the wheel, inventing the first legal system, inventing, you know, the first written language, that sort of thing. But they were also um, big promoters of the arts, the rulers of, of um, Mesopotamia and um, other um, kingdoms that came after that and, but artists have always played this role in Iraq of correct, connecting the outside and the inside and to an extent when I was there they still did that so while a lot of my Iraqi friends were very nervous about being seen with me in public because if they were that would probably attract the attention of the secret police and no one wants that um I could go to art galleries and meet with artists and talk to artists and we had a reason to be together and artists had a little bit more leeway because of that historical, you know, connection and they're also they're just their place in society, connecting it to the outside world. And um, so that for me was just fantastic to have access to that artistic community. So that's why I created the character of Rania, who is an artist, yeah, a um art gallery owner. I actually modelled her art gallery after a real art gallery that I used to go to quite a lot, um, which is run by, not not her, by a man, not a woman, but in my creation. Um, so I wanted to bring in that, that other side of Baghdad um, that, you know, people I think would have no, very little idea about it if they just based their ideas on, um, you know, what we saw on our TVs and read in the newspaper during the Iraq war. That's mostly the image that people have of, of Iraq and Baghdad, but of course it's much more than just that. And it had some wonderful aspects to it. And, you know, you could find any sort of art there, classical art, modern art, impressionist, you name it, it all different forms of arts, a lot of sculpting. And um, that was just a real lifesaver for me to have somewhere that I could go. And I went there frequently. And um, you mentioned um, the, the first scene where Ali meets Rania, the art gallery owner. And I set that at another of my all-time favourite spots in Baghdad, which is also very popular with artists and writers especially. It's um, Mutanabi Book Market, just an amazing place. Uh, if anybody's listening out there, Google it. Um, I think the Smithsonian actually has a um, exhibition on Mutanabi uh, Street. It is 
this beautiful uh, Ottoman era walking street with all these old buildings and there are books as far as you can see, beautiful engraved Qurans, uh, rare books, paperbacks, you know, books of all sorts of languages just everywhere. And you go down these little arcades and little alleys and there's all these bookstores with books going up to the roof and you can smell the pages and you can smell the ink. And, and that's where I introduced the character of Rania, who, as you said, she is selling off the last of her grandfather's once great library. So she comes from a very sort of aristocratic background. She's the Sheikh's granddaughter. But, you know, since Saddam Hussein came to power, the, the traditional structures had been destroyed and her family had lost all its land and, and power. To, well, mostly, but she herself is, is really in hard times. So she's selling off um, the last of her grandfather's um, book collection. And uh, that is when her and Ali first meet. And um, I loved writing that scene, um, just Mutanabi Market. Any way to visit it, even if it's only in my own mind's eye, is just so wonderful. You know, um, Baghdad actually in the 1970s uh, and 60s was a huge um, tourist attraction. Lots of Europeans used to go there. There were lots of American oil people, for example, living there, lots of expats. And I always think, you know, it would be so wonderful if the day comes when people can go there again as tourists. You know, that's not possible now. But, you know, I just hope one day people can go there and Mutanabi Market would definitely be one of the top things on any book lover's itinerary or anyone's itinerary for that matter. Just so lovely. There's this amazing cafe on the corner where all the sort of philosophers and artists and writers of Iraq hang out and they're making coffee. And oh, It's just lovely. Yeah, I, I really um, enjoyed writing that scene where I introduced Rania. But I experienced like I experienced the walk. I experienced the scene and it was amazing to me because that is a place that I don't have a passport. I've, I've never left the country. And so I did this weekend when I read your book and the way that you just pulled me into that story. I was walking with Allie and then I moved in with Rania. And then it was her art and it, all of its beauty and all of its talent. She still had a price to pay because of mm. that art. And I won't do spoiler alerts. You've got to read it. But I will say that, that every time I moved through a chapter, my innocence was peeled away. I started to think through things differently. I started to question as a reader, as a mother, as a friend. And that took me on this ride that I'm just so blessed that I had an opportunity to ride through. But with Rania, with her, you know, with that light, with, you know, the diplomats and, and here's, you know, people visiting and they're having, you know, wine and all of this going on in one spot. You also have the dark. So you have the light and the dark and the tension and the stress on my heart and my blood pressure. <laughs> and it, Sorry just, about that. <laughs> it just ran like its course throughout the story. So it was it was as if I I could go in a corner 
cafe. I could eat ice cream in a very innocent moment. Have an ice cream with a child, but understand what is happening in those conversations and around me and across and and beyond me. And so when I went through that experience then with Huda, I was like, oh, there's more. There's always more. There's always a twist and a turn. And and it's always ever present that it will pull your heart and and hurt it. But it will also give you hope throughout. I mean, the way that you did that, the way that you crafted that vein and, and to be able to hold both of those as the balance. Did you, did it just come naturally for you or did you look for places for that to occur or was this just the natural progression? Well, I did want to show that, um, you know, the normal parts of an Iraqi woman's life because, you know, at I think, you know, some people would say, oh, you know, I wouldn't have anything in con common with an Iraqi woman. Um, you know, maybe I'm not going to understand this book. But for me, I found um, my Iraqi friends very just easy and normal too <laughs> in, in many ways, you know, just like me. Like they might bake their bread flat or they might pray in a different way. But our lives were very similar in a way, in, you know, in many ordinary ways. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of women in the West are going to see themselves in the book, you know, Huda is always falling off the diet bandwagon. She's always starting diets and falling off it. So I, I can relate to that. Um, Rania and Huda are both dealing with rebellious teenagers. Uh, I can relate to that. <laughs> I think they're getting ready to go to school. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Huda is always trying to juggle um, home and work responsibilities. So these are things that women all over the world can relate to. And I wanted, especially at this time when, you know, we feel so divided, to sort of look at the things that we share in common. And that was very important for me um, to show, you know, how much we share. And, you know, we might have some differences, but we the important things are the other things that we share. And I also wanted, for, you know, I guess for to look at that ordinary part of life but then inject the suspense into it. So, yeah, that scene that you mentioned where Huda is at the ice cream parlour and uh, she's confronted by her, uh, her her secret police handler sits down with her um, and makes some threats. You know, I think putting it in such a domestic sort of setting and injecting this, you know, snake into it um, worked quite well, that combination of the very domestic everyday setting um, and also, you know, sort of like a woman's world and then this other world that is usually confined to, to men, you know, we, if we're talking about fiction, you know, the, the, the spying and, uh, you know, the intrigue and so on is often like men are doing that and women are side characters and in, in this the women are the main characters and I also wanted to show that, yeah. And so you have you know, secrets all around. You have Allie keeping her own set of secrets. You have her mother's secrets. Then you have Rania. She's got her whole secrets there from her past life and her choices. And then, you know, how did these blood sisters fall apart? Like how, how is the tension there? So when they, when they, 
so stop me. I'm not I'm trying to do a spoiler alert, but it was so well crafted because, you know, you introduce the blood oath and that for generations to come, we will have sorrow for our generations if we break this blood oath. But then when they meet, it's tension, it's hurt, it's pain, and you can feel it through the pages. You could feel it. It was almost like it could cut through you. So then you have to say, well, what is it? What could have done this thing? How can friendships be severed and broken or placed and put together and, and weaves around? And so you're building that suspense on many different levels. And then at the end, when it when, you know, of course, with resolution, is it ever resolved? I want more. It's almost like, are you going to write a short story? <laughs> to go for like a reader magnet <laughs> so we can kind of get a little bit more later to see like five years later or so. Um, but it's just how you put it all together. It's just a tapestry of just, it's all, it all comes together. Like when you were piecing it, it did it look like the back to you all messy and, and the pattern didn't make sense? Or did you see the pattern? Did you see it all? Uh yeah, no, I, I knew sort of where I was um, heading. I had like a, a vague plot um, and then I just adjusted it as I went along. When I got to the end of each chapter, it would usually take me, you know, a while to think about what was going to happen in the next cha chapter. Um, so during that time, I would like revise and try and improve the first, the previous chapter while thinking about what's actually going to take place next. And um one of my techniques as a writer, I actually get a long roll of um, white paper. We call it butcher's paper in Australia. I'm not sure if that's the same word in, in America, but it would be like um, whiteboard paper on a long roll. And I would push out the roll of paper along my table and I had, um, I used mind mapping. Uh, and so I would have like a green circle for a puta and then a, orange star for Rania and then a pink box for Ali. And so I could see what the, where they pop up, you know, visually I could see their progress through the book and I had um, different, you know, settings where the settings reoccurred, um, that sort of thing. So I could see a visual representation and I could pick up things like, oh, I put too much of so-and-so in and I haven't heard from Rania in you know, six chapters, I've got to find a way to bring her back in, like to keep all the characters involved. Um, so from a craft point of view, that was um, that was useful, the mind mapping and seeing it all laid out on my big long, uh, you know, card, my long rug of, of, of story. <laughs> so that actually, yeah, yeah, I think I've still got it somewhere rolled up. <laughs> um, so that was handy, you know, in terms of craft for being able to see visually where the different stories, where the different characters were and, um, you know, different supporting characters, settings, because I like to, um, repeat my settings so it's not, uh, you know, everything's not taking place in a new location all the time because it's good to have some familiarity and also when you're looking for a resolution, it's good to, you know, bring it back to, you know, places where you've been before or key events, you know, to have an event 
um, you know, the first time Rania and Huda see each other again after so many years is in, uh, you know, Rania's garden and it's a very tense place and they often meet there and so, you know, that setting shows the change in their relationship. You know, a lot of momentous things happen in that same place and um, I think that helps with creating a sense of being there because you can set it up and then when you get to the next scene, people already know in their mind what it looks like. So you can just add a little bit of reminders and they're like, oh, yes, it's got the the crow, or, you know, is always living in the garden. And, you know, you, you mentioned one, you know, she has a lot of fruit trees in her garden. You mentioned one and then people oh, remember, oh, yeah, she's got blah, blah, blah. So they're already doing, you know, your readers are doing half the work for you as you progress on and the story becomes faster. You, They already have the image in their mind. So I like to go back to those places. And I guess that's like anybody likes to go back to the places they enjoy. <laughs> so, yeah, so for me too, I enjoy going back to those those places. There were lovely places. Many of them were lovely, intimate places. Mm. Um, but I will say you did that with not only setting, you did that with action as well. Because like, for example, you got to read the book, guys. Holler at me now, Gina. But like with reading of the grounds, that's all I'm going to say. Oh, like, yeah. I'm just going to leave that alone. Um, but you do that, and and as the characters change, and as the tension builds, and the conflicts just continue to pound at you, that changes as well. But the, mm. the situation, but that leaning and looking and trying to observe that feels the same. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I love that. That was um, when I lived in uh, Baghdad. It was quite common for someone at your table, if you're having coffee, someone would say, oh, I'll read your your future. And they'd get your coffee cup after you finish drinking it and they make you put it upside down. And you have to let it sit there while it sort of dries for a few minutes and then you have to swirl it, turn it, flip it, and then um, they look at the coffee grounds in your saucer and inside your cup, what's left in your cup. And because Iraqis have a very, like a little espresso and it's very thick. So quite often there's coffee grounds at the bottom. And then they tell you what they predict for your life. You know, they do fortune telling. And, uh, you know, a few of my friends just did that. You know, if they had a few minutes, they'd be like, oh, I'll read your fortune. And, you know, um, I don't think they particularly thought themselves were fortune tellers, but maybe they knew what to look for. So that was actually one of the crazy things that I, you know, writers always go down the the research rabbit hole. So I, you know, researched all the normal things you would expect for that book. Um, got a lot of help from my Iraqi friends um, for research, but I also just uh, went down the rabbit hole, finding out how do you actually read the coffee grounds, getting a, you know, a, a like encyclopedia of what the different squiggles mean. So when I put them in, it's semi-accurate representation of what someone who was really knows what they were doing would would see in that space. And, um, yeah, you know, a lot of time spent, you know, researching things like that. But that actually was one of the uh, more interesting, you know, little rabbit holes that I went, went down the the whole reading of the coffee grounds, but I looked at things like uh, 
crop reports to make sure I had the, the right sort of crops growing in the field, um, you know, uh, forestry reports to make sure I had the right trees, bird reports, a lot of, you know, bird surveys to find out which bird would be where at what time and, you know, trying to get all those details right. I guess that's the journalist in me. Yeah, trying, trying to get the facts right but not let the facts take over that I guess that was the challenge it, to keep make sure the story was um the main thing and that it didn't turn into a, a a news report so as soon as you started talking about those details as soon as you started talking about crops birds tides I'm thinking journalism mm. that's it so I was going to ask you about that like how how much did that play? How heavily influenced were you when you then moved from a journalistic reporting to writing fiction? How was that switch for you? And what did you find as like carried over? And then what was a challenge? Yeah, you know, I would say there were um, pros and cons to um, my journalism, you know, my past as a journalist. Um, you know, being a journalist, is it, it helps you um, take notice of the details. And that's very important. Like the small details are things that, uh, that I think make or break a story in a way that give it that sense of authenticity. Um, I also had research skills. Um, I had a lot of experience, you know, interviewing people, so I wasn't afraid to ask questions. And also in my own life, um, especially in that period after the war, I was able to go and meet people and ask questions that I wasn't able to ask um, under Saddam Hussein, and so that was a real um, privilege, you know, for me. So I could use my 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 past work as something to refer to. You know, I had I worked in radio, so I had a lot of radio tapes, so I could listen to sounds and um, stories. But on the other hand, I also really had to learn to sort of retrain myself uh, because in journalism, it's all facts, facts, facts. Um, and I actually found that on occasion I try and put something from real life in the story. And, you know, there are quite a lot of real life things sprinkled throughout, but quite often I'd think, oh, you know, I'm going to put in X, Y, Z that happened to me. And I'd put it in there and I'd be like, that looks so unbelievable. And no one is going to believe that happened. Um, and, you know, in a way, real life is so much messier than fiction. Um, you know, People can act completely out of character, especially if we're talking about when you're under extreme stress, like the characters in this novel, or living in Iraq in reality. Um, you know, people who are very meek can suddenly become very brave. People who are highly ethical can make um, mistakes that seem completely out of character. But you can't do that in a novel. If you did that, people would be like, why, why is my character doing that? That doesn't make sense. You have to, like, lay the clues at least, even if they're sort of hidden clues. They've got to be there. Um, so I had to sort of, in a way, uh, learn to let go of that obsession with what actually happened and get creative. And uh, somewhere, very wise person, I can't remember who it is off the top of my head, but they said something like... Um, Fiction is the lie through which we reveal the truth or something like that. So that's what I was, you know, had to learn to do because in real life you don't get answers for the things often that you really want to know. Uh, you, you know, I know from my own 
the situation. You know, I didn't ask some questions that I wanted to ask because I was too nervous or I didn't want to hear the answer or, you know, another fact, some other factor. So, you know, in a novel, you can explore things that in real life you probably wouldn't. And, you know, one thing we don't get as a journalist is we can observe but we can't be inside somebody's head. And that's where fiction is so important. You really get the chance to look at things from someone else's point of view. And that's one thing I wanted to do in this book because, you know, when I tell friends and family and people I meet, oh, yeah, you know, I uh, was befriended by a woman and turned out she was an informant for the secret police, people are usually like, oh, my gosh, that's awful, you know, but if you read this book and you think about someone in the character Hooda's situation, you'll probably think, well, you know, I'm not sure if I would have done it differently. You know, what would I have done? And I wanted to create an experience where people are put in that situation where they have to do something against their own ethics and think about uh, how would you how would you respond yourself? You know, would you give in straight away? Would you resist? How would you resist? You know, where are you going to draw the line? Um, that sort of experience. So that was something that I was trying to inject into it, that feeling of being inside someone else's, you know, in someone else's shoes. And as a journalist, that's not really possible. You can only observe and go on what they tell you. And as we, I showed in that book, there's a lot of things that people aren't talking about. And that was, you know, one of the, the overarching experiences of my time under Saddam Hussein, you know, his face was everywhere. There were billboards, there were statues, there were murals, absolutely everywhere. And in fact, Ali has a big billboard outside her house and she often looks outside and sees Saddam. He's on the telephone. She feels like he's watching her. And that is modelled on the billboard that was outside my house. You know, I would often look through the window and look at Saddam Hussein. And at that time, there was a saying that... Um, there were five million statues of ba in Baghdad of Saddam Hussein, one to look after, you know, to look over each of the five million people living in, in the city. And you really um, felt like that and you had to be very, very careful about what you said because someone might be a secret police informer, your phone might be tapped. So a lot of things did go unsaid. Um, you know, even the name Saddam Hussein was completely taboo. People did not say that out loud because there were, worried that it would attract the attention of the secret police. So there were so many things that were unsaid and at least fiction, you know, you can find out the unsaid things eventually, <laughs> you know, you're going to keep, keep some of them hidden for a while, but, you know, eventually you will find out the hidden things, the secrets as well as what's on the surface. And the motivations and the reasons for the actions and the whys and that's what I was trying to say earlier, like through every chapter, the stakes would get higher and higher. And so then the lines would be drawn and then the sand and then the tide would come and wash that away. And then more lines would have to be drawn. And then where do you, when is enough is enough? Or how do you make these choices? And so as a mom too, putting myself into the mother's heads like that, it was just so moving to have to consider all of the innocence of a Chewbacca or a little bit of a rebellion of, you know, skipping a parade. But then what could that cost a family? 
what could that cost? What could that do? And so you see all of that with the children. And that is a part of the story that I love that they both had a 14 and a 16 year old in the stories. I love that part of it. Um, I feel like this book needs to be in high schools. It needs to be on college campuses. It needs to be in the school system recommended reading list uh, because we do also get that. You know, a lot of times they'll say, well, why a, you know, kids will need YA books because it's told through the story of, a, you know, the eyes of a 17 or a 16 year old protagonist. But the way that you have integrated these teenagers into this story as well, this would give excellent discussion points for school, homeschool moms, all across. So were the teenagers always there for you? Like, did you know that that was going to be that running from the beginning? Was that a part of your character development from the beginning? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think for individuals, when you're put in a situation that is, you know, really um, goes against your own morals, it's easier to take a stand than if you're a mother and if you don't go along with it, they're going to harm your child. Then you almost have no choice. Um, I think I can't imagine anybody's going to say, okay, well, I'm going to resist even if it means my teenage son is going to end up in a terrible militia or, you know, so it sort of um, forces their hand. And, you know, also um, I wanted to explore those issues of, you know, when teenage, you know, as kids grow up, they learn more and more about what's happening in the family, the, the, any family secrets, your kids are going to eventually find out about them. And, you know, when I was living in Iraq, I didn't have any children at that time. Um, but I always wondered, like, what, you know, how do their kids feel about this? You know, have they just been trained from an early, very early time, don't say anything? Um, but that's not the nature of teenagers. You know, teenagers don't take kindly to being told, be quiet, don't say what's, you know, what you want, um, although some of them just don't talk at all. But, um, you know, um, so how do you, you know, when they're younger, you can probably, in a way, just they don't need to know what's going on, you know, in the outside world. It's not going to impact them. But as soon as they get older, they also have to learn to toe the line um, in a repressive society like that, not to speak out, not to complain about the government, um, to avoid certain places so you don't come in contact with members of the regime, that sort of thing. And children, you know, part of growing up is becoming more rebellious against all levels of authority. Um, but in Iraq, rebellion against authority would have, you know, such more heavy um, consequences. So, um, yeah, it was very important for me to put them the, the teenagers into that story and also you know a lot of my friends in Iraq did have children um teenage children or children who were going into the teenage years and um you know I think it was very hard for them uh wondering about their kids futures and what was going to happen to them because I think one thing that I do show in the book is that Iraqis are real patriots um, you know, Americans are real patriots and Iraqis are also real patriots. And, you know, I think many of my friends, you know, they often 
you know, talked about the past as if it was still present, like the, the great past of Iraq, especially that period in the in the 1960s and 70s, which I often flash back through, mm-hmm. back to through Ali's mum, who was working there as a nurse during that period. And of the golden years, it's called, when Baghdad was, you know, the most cosmopolitan city in the Middle East, lots of tourists, lots of expats, cafes, restaurants, uh, you know, beautiful river tigress running through the middle. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of Iraqis talked about that period often because it was so hard to look at what the present was and also they didn't want to give up on that. You know, they loved their country and they still hoped, you know, that it could go back to the golden years. And I think that was something that kept them going, this sense of loving their country, not wanting to abandon their country. You know, a lot of my friends were doctors, engineers, you know, uh, teachers, essential workers, you know. (laughs) So they were like, you know, we have to stay and we have to keep hoping things will get better because, you know, our country needs us. And so they felt a real sense of duty to their fellow Iraqis and to, you know, just the tie, the history of Iraq. Um, and that, of course, meant their children were also there. And I think that was something that many of them struggled with, their sense of loyalty to their country and their community, not the government, but to their country and their society and their loyalty and their need to protect their children. I think that was something that they really struggled with and I tried to also inject that into the book and I think you'll see quite a lot of that, um, that the difficulties they go through in, in um, reconciling, you know, uh, these different and very strong loyalties. And you do that so well. You paint that mural so well with each chapter. You understand more of, you know, why they stay or or why they make the choices to do the next steps, the next steps. And it's just a beautiful mural. Mm. When you walk away from the book, this is a book that's going to stay with me. Thank you. (laughs) This, you know, I, there are a few books in my life where, and I, I don't know if you know uh, Kate DiCamillo. She's my favorite author and she writes uh, middle grades, early readers. And there's something about just the purity and the love and just the honesty within her books that like I, I, t- I told her that it's like fingerprints on my heart. And your book does that. It's like I have your fingerprint there because it is just a place that I would have never expected to go in the middle of 31 chapters that I will never forget that I went there. Oh, thank you. Like it, it is truly, and I could say five star or 500 star. I mean, the reviews are there. You've been receiving such great praise for the book, but just as a simple reader as me, I will say that it is a book that, that we all need and it is a cherished book. Oh, thank you, Jen. That is so nice to hear. Yeah, you know, when you are writing, you really, you just never know if anyone's ever going to read it. And it has gotten such, you know, good reaction. When I hear um, people like you saying stuff like that, I feel, um, you know, so great and also just so happy um, to get a, a different view or understanding of Iraq and, and 
you know, Iraqi women out there. You know, my Iraqi friends were such a huge um, encouragement while I was writing this book and they were like, yes, please do it, Gina. You know, you know us and please tell our stories. And, um, you know, I feel for them, you know, that often they, you know, don't see themselves reflected in, you know, the media coverage or whatever the, the overwhelming stereotype of Iraq is not what they um, experienced. And um, that for me was, you know, um, really encouraging. And I felt a real responsibility to try and, you know, get the details right and make sure that it was, you know, a real reflection of what was going on. And, um, you know, I, uh, I think I mentioned before, you know, I really was inspired by my Iraqi women friends in particular. And I really hoped that that came through in the book because they were such warm and lovely people and so um, resilient. You know, they never gave up. And that was something that I wanted to, to you know, pay tribute to um, because, you know, they went through a lot. And um, to come out, you know, the other side still going, still um, supportive and warm, lovely people, um, it's amazing that, you know, they managed to come out the other side in such an inspiring way, I guess. So I really wanted to put that in. So it's so great when I hear that sort of um, message from you. It really um, is just wonderful. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. I know you brought honor to the end. I know that you did. Yeah. Um, I want to just thank you so much for spending this time with me today and sharing in the love. Guys, when that apricot's bloom, look at it. Just sharing in this love. And you're talking about your process. You gave great tips along the way. <laughs> so, um, guys, just share out this podcast with your friends. But also, next time you're looking for a book to read, uh, this one should be on your list. Seriously. Gina, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Jen. It was my pleasure. And, and thank you very much for having me. I love talking to you. Thank you. All right, guys, I will talk with y'all. Now that you found me on the Jen Lowry Writes podcast, I challenge you to head over to where books are sold and find me there. I've published 11 books so far, and I write clean books for all ages. Horror, paranormal, sweet romance, fantasy, historical fiction, you name it. I've got your genre. Search Jen Lowry at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Kobo, and more. And for my Bible devotionals, you'll see my full name, Dr. Jennifer Eichner-Lowry on Amazon. So I challenge you today to go out there and write something inspiring and share it with the world. Thanks for joining me on Jen Lowry Writes. You guys have a blessed day.